jump into before we get into the show. Okay. So, first, I bought a new car. Mm-hmm. I decided to use Carvana because I didn't want to deal with the dealership right. and the salesperson, and I heard good things. So, go on Carvana's website. It is super easy to use. Order my car. Mm-hmm. Everything seems to be going well. <clears throat> get a delivery date. I told you about the thing where... I purchased the car and they're like, okay, you can have it delivered for $0 or what we recommend, you drive an hour and a half north and pick it up. Right. And it's like, why would you even recommend? Yeah. What are you talking about? Hold up. Exactly. So (laughs) I have it free delivered to me. Mm -hmm. Everything seems to be going well. And then I get a text that morning from a guy, uh, Forget his name, Dave. So, get a text and Dave is like, hey, I'm dropping your car off right. today. So, I need a picture with your face holding your ID and then a copy of your insurance. I'm like, okay. He shows up. He unloads the car. I do this thing where I got, I walked outside a little too early mm-hmm. and it's on the back of a big truck. Mm-hmm. And so he has to like let the car off and I'm standing awkwardly, like just in my yard (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) watching him unload the car, but I can't really talk to him. And so I actually walked back inside and got trapped, like tried to look busy. Like I forgot something like, Oh yeah. So I come back out, the car is there. He's like, all right, do you want to give it a test drive? I'm like, sure. Drive around the block, come back. I'm like, yep, looks good. I have it for seven days. They have a seven day, you know, return policy. And then after that, I have a warranty on it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I just want it to run. I don't care. Yeah. Right. Like, right. So I come back and um, pull in and Dave is like smoking and I see him <laughs> like look up and sees me. And he's like, like, you can tell he like, he, did not right. so, yeah. so quick. He's like throwing away the cigarette, which I'm like, don't care, man. It's totally okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but then he's like, okay, so do, how, how'd she feel? And I'm like, yep, good. I'm like, okay, so we have some paperwork. So he gets the paperwork out. And what is it about people who work around cars? Like Carvana's thing is you don't have to deal with a, um, with a, Right. Dealer, right? With an with an agent. And we start filling out this paperwork. He's like, Yeah, that's a really good car you got there. It's a 2018 Nissan. <laughs> right. Versa. Yeah. He's like, you know, when I saw that you got this for the price, I was like, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. and I just want to be like, Dave, stop. Yeah. No. This is the whole reason I Bought a car off a website. I don't want to talk to anybody. And this, and this car isn't good. Are you kidding right. me? Like, it's serviceable. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted. Really, right. if you wanted to sell me in this moment, you say, yeah, you got a decent car. Right. You wouldn't be like, oh, she's a beaut. Oh, right. when I saw that you got you got a steal. Yeah. It's like, no, I didn't, man. Right. And I know Carvana's website evens out all the prices. I know that it's not like down to the car. Ooh, you save five extra on this because in our, I know it's just a generalized like levels of cars all get priced the same. You know what I mean? Like I, I got it, Dave. 
So I'm like, yep, yep. And I'm just not really engaging it because I'm just like, I just want to get through. Mm -hmm. So you can tell like the salesman gene just won't ever shut off. You can't ever get them to break, right? They're like the, um, like the British guards, Mm -hmm. right? Right. You like can't smile. (laughs) Right. You just can't get them to not. So Uh I'm not really giving him what, what he wants with like the, yeah, dude, I'm super excited about it. So I'm signing everything, and he just goes, you got a real nice signature. <laughs> He's like, I, I wish my, my signature looked like that. Like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't really look at other people's signatures, but right. I know that mine isn't anything special. Yeah. But I just love that he was so desperate for something. He just needs someone to talk to. No, not that. He just needs to engage in like a salesman. <laughs> yeah, repartee. sure. Like yeah. he needs to build me up. Like that's his goal in that moment is to make me feel good about my purchase mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Yeah. He's going to compliment my signature. He's going to tell me what a beautiful 2018 <laughs> Nissan Versa I got. Right. That that unique silver color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Did he try and sell you anything afterwards? No. <laughs> no. I huh. mean, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, I signed the documents. And then he was like, hey, if you need anything today, you just, you know, just call me. And after today, you can just call this 1-800 number. And my instinct was like, Dave, what could happen today that I would need to call you? <laughs> Explain to me how this works. Why right. are you coming at me with salesman energy? Because this is like creeping me out. Especially after going off of a um, a home buying experience, right. which was very negative and like full of like the salesman just not being able to turn off at any point. Right. You know? Yeah. So that was Carvana, and mm-hmm. then the other thing I had to say has to do with uh, we own this city. So okay, is there anything you wanted to mention? Um. No. I'll. S- no. I. I don't have anything. So, we obviously missed a week. Mm-hmm. Do you want to uh, place blame for that? Sure. <laughs> uh, the the issue I was running into when I was writing up the notes and the and and the uh, going over the write up and everything is like, I don't really feel like there's much different to say between the two episodes Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. it's not like severance where it's like slowly revealing itself (laughs) and there's like stuff you can theorize about i mean this show is slowly revealing itself but it's a true story you know it's all already out there um so do you want to just do one big episode i mean i guess we'll still just talk about them in order or whatever but yeah okay so yeah so part two um I'm switching the write-up to Vulture, okay? Because I realized that looking for a write-up that, like, succinctly wraps up the episode and touches, like, all the major points you want to talk about moment by moment is, like, tedious, first of all. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I already watched the episode, so we don't need that. So I'm going for a more... uh, Professional? A more thematic... Thematic. ...review or or wrap-up. And I thought the ones from Vulture were pretty good. I'm pretty on board with where the guy's at. Okay. <clears throat> so we'll start with What's that. What's his name? Um, Should give him his, his dues. 
Vulture.com. His name is not Vulture.com. <laughs> His Justin. name is PaulVulture.com. Uh, okay, <laughs> I, well, I went to the website, and I've got this big, you've reached your monthly article limit. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't look at the guy's name. So we're screwed on. Uh, on no, because I've already copied the thing into my notes. Well, what about the next episode? I copied that one over too. No, 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 no. I'm saying the next live one. But Can it'll you... reset next week, I think. Okay. Written by Scott Tobias. Familiar, right? Yeah. No, he okay. used to write for the AV Club and then right. started his own website which with um, Keith Phipps. That I visited mm-hmm. um, a lot, and that Hello. went under. Mm-hmm. And I actually listened to his podcast, The Next Picture Show. Oh, okay, yeah, that guy. Okay, so that's the write-up I'm reading. All right, I'm, I'm on board with him, too. Um, any major thoughts before I get into the write-up? So here's my major thought. My major thought is, um, you know, I so I, I'm trying to view this through the lens of like my political growth right we kind of talked about that right in the first episode and the thing that stood out to me is you know again how people could discount this show and one of the ways is you know david simon and how polarizing he is on social media twitter he's very aggressive mm-hmm. very dismissive of people who want to argue points with him mm-hmm. and can come off as a bit of a you know, prick. Yeah. And how that could be used and how I even fell into that trap a few times of like, well, I just wish they weren't so mean all the time or angry or mm-hmm. gosh, do you have to be so abrasive, you know? And it came out a little bit in when we talk about politics of how some people, especially on the far left, can come off being more aggressive and negative and how that can be an initial turnoff. Not many people, myself included, can listen to just endless amounts of people being just angry yeah. and abrasive. It, it can wear on you, even if somebody's funny or making good points. So I get it. But the thing that gets obscured in it is what is that person angry about? And I yeah. think that's the thing that, again, I allowed myself to be hoodwinked by, you know, being like, well, does that person have to swear so much mm-hmm. in making their point? Yeah. As, as if making a point without swearing is inherently better right or more thought out or you know it should gain more um weight Mm -hmm. and i realize now like some people have good reason to be upset yeah and to be furious and instead the question should be why is this person as angry as they are Mm -hmm. and then understanding the issue at that level and what you find is, especially when it comes to police and, you know, I was talking to my son about protests and currently right now people are outside the houses of Supreme Court judges mm-hmm. protesting. I was talking to him 
he was asking me about the protest. And I was just like, you know, protests should be disruptive, mm-hmm. number one. Um, if they're not disruptive, then you're not going to understand the level to which these people are impacted by the thing that they're protesting. Mm-hmm. It should make you aware of if somebody steps in front of my car holding a sign, that should be disruptive to me. Mm-hmm. I should have a feeling of being like, well, now I'm late for work and now I'm angry. <laughs> okay, I'm angry because this person's angry. Mm-hmm. So it should help me then think about, well, why are they angry enough to stand in front of my car? Now, right. if they're doing that because then they say the election is stolen and COVID is fake, well, I can look at them and be like, that was a crazy person, mm-hmm. and I can disregard what they have to say. Mm-hmm. But they're standing in front of my car because they say this is the twelfth kid murdered by police mm. in the last six months or whatever. Then, okay, I need to maybe me be more aware of that issue. Mm-hmm. And so, again, that's the that's the idea of protest. And what I love is when people try to police. The protests. Mm -hmm. So you look at what's happening outside of Brett Kavanaugh's house. It's like people chanting, standing away from his home, Mm -hmm. you know, not throwing Molotov cocktails or anything. Right. And still people, of course, on the right, but on the left, too, are like, well, this is just beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, it's beyond the pale for you because you don't care about it. Right. As much as they do. Right. So maybe try to understand and again, anybody who's protesting, I think the right way to do it is that you yourself are uncomfortable with the way that you're protesting. Yeah. I don't want to give up my time to go stand out in front of someone else's house and chant. I don't know anybody who would like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And so that's the, that's the thing that I think is brought up in these episodes as well, especially in the last episode, is that anger is always at play in these situations Uh and the anger that people are responding to in protests is always greater than the anger you see by the protesters so in this situation one thing that i love about um the main character john bernthal Uh he's playing jenkins jenkins is jenkins is furious Mm -hmm. he's insecure and he's angry, mm-hmm. right? But the uniform and his position allows him to push that anger down mm-hmm. and hide it behind the badge, behind his uniform, behind his position. Same thing with Herschel, right? Mm-hmm. And they <clears throat> would deny that they're angry, though. Right. They would deny that, oh, no, I'm not angry. What are you talking about? Uh-huh. I'm just doing my job. Yeah. It's like, no, you, are you, do you disagree with that? I I I think there's a progression to it. I think part of the point of the show is that it's trying to show that he that it's the system that's causing this. That Jenkins doesn't come in that way, but the system shapes him to be that way. And that's what I would push back a little bit on and I'd push back a little bit on the protesters, even people who are protesting the election being stolen or whatever other crazy stuff. I think it's still somewhat important to, obviously those ideas are ridiculous, but to tr- at least try and empathize a little bit with the feeling of like they're, um, they're uh, like they don't have any faith in their government, right? Like, 
I th- I think it was uh, Michael Brooks on the mm-hmm. Majority Report. Mm-hmm. His his big um, his big like uh, motivating force was um, hate the system, love the people, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I try and keep that in mind, and I also try and keep in mind the idea of just like ultimately, I don't want to isolate any of those people now whether i think we can they can actually be reached out to or have their minds changed i think is a different story but i do think it's somewhat important to kind of keep in keep in keep that little sliver of it in mind i i agree Uh uh-huh but i disagree about jenkins and herschel so that's what i also wanted to get to is that plays into how I'm feeling with the show in that here's the other thing. Have you been listening to the podcast? I listened to the first episode. Right. So it's impossible for me to know because I listened to the first episode and then I, and now I'm watching the show and it's obviously tainted the way I'm watching the show. But the first episode with John, the interview with John Bernthal was great. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really interesting and it made me really like John Bernthal Mm -hmm. But then after listening to that, going into watching the show, it was like I was beating, being hit over the head with a hammer. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my gosh. It's so, so obvious. They're trying, to, they're trying to pin it all on the system. They're trying to show – look at how hard they're trying to make him look like a family man. You know what I mean? Da, 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 it's just, it was like it's become a little bit too much. See, you know what's so interesting? <clears throat> I have almost the exact opposite read You don't think it. that scene in this part two episode where he walks in to his – whatever the stand-up is for the day – the announcements or whatever they're doing. And he's like completely wide eyed and just like bubbly and like bouncing around. And like, you can tell he's, and then, and then somebody says something, he's like, Hmm. Right. And then somebody else is like, Hmm, that's interesting. You know what I mean? It's like, okay. So I'll tell you that the moments that stand out to me when, when I'm analyzing it. And again, I agree with you that I want to have empathy for the people in a broken system. Right. And that protects you from, yeah, being somebody who's like, you know, whatever, like we just need to vote blue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, no, you need to actually change the system. Yeah. You know, um, but the, the, the reason why I don't apply that to Jenkins and Herschel is number one, there's that scene in the roll call or whatever, mm-hmm. where Jenkins is up against the wall with his partner, mm-hmm. like laying back. And then as soon as the police chief or whatever talks about one of the street cops who've, who's been pulled, mm-hmm. um, he, Jenkins, shouts out. Right, but that, that's what I'm saying. That's after all this other stuff has happened. Yeah, but, but that to me, I immediately flashed back to that is him in high school. Sure. What, yeah. what the system allowed him to do is to bring out his true nature again, which was out in high school. And then what tends to happen is like, hey, I'm a punk kid. I'm going right. to be part of this system. And I'm going to like, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be on the straight and narrow or I'm going to change. Right. Then the system tells you, hey, you don't have to change, buddy. Right. Be the same <clears throat> asshole jerk you were in high school. And we will give you the freedom to do that. And then, that comes right back to the forefront 
And that is who he is. That's who he right. wants to be. And that's exactly my point. Because I agree with you that that is who he is. But to me, it feels like the show is leaning a little bit too hard on the system side of things. And not that I even disagree with it, but the the thesis seems to be that no matter who you are, this is what the system is going to turn you into, right? Which I agree with to a degree. At the same time, I think there has to be something about you outside of the system to turn out like Wayne Jenkins or Daniel Hersel, right? Like it's not a 100, it's not like a, uh, uh, one to one. You're right. It, yeah. You know what I mean? Like Comparison. there is some, like there's some stuff that you bring into it. And the feelings that I got from those first scenes where he's like first being introduced, right? He's meeting his commanding officer or whatever, his mentor was like, oh, wow, look at this. This guy's completely innocent. Like he has no idea what he's getting into. Where my feeling even now, and again, maybe I'm trying to lean away from it a little bit is like you have to already have a certain mentality to want to be in that position to become a cop. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you can't, the system is definitely bad and not good. And <laughs> you know what I mean? It is going to change everybody. Um, but it, to me, it felt like the show was leaning a little bit too, too much in that direction. See, I, I find the alchemy to be the thing that, that applies to them that turns them that, is that mentality that you would that lead you to want to be a cop from that perspective of like I'm in high school and I value you know strength mm -hmm. probably bullying a little bit um some kind of moral being some kind of moral force or moral good mm -hmm. in the world like that then when you get involved in the police field is going to turn you into someone who abuses it. Mm -hmm. And there are people like the, the, the desk cops mainly. Mm -hmm. Um, there's that one guy that, um, uh, the homicide detective bumps into. He's like, Oh, I haven't seen you. And he's like, yeah, I just couldn't deal with what they were doing on the, you know, beats. Mm -hmm. So I'm just here behind the, 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 the desk until I get my pension yeah. and I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. And so you do have good cops, right. Who are <clears throat> not turned by the system but Herschel and Jenkins, again, I related to like, it's just the high school mentality. It's just anger, a simmering anger and, and lack of confidence in themselves. Right. A, what's the word I used it before. I'm now, now I'm forgetting their, um, insecurity. Insecu yeah. They're, mm -hmm. they're insecurity. The second thing that I point to is the episode where Jenkins or the scene where Jenkins shows up at the cookout and he mispronounces, Patron. Patron. He calls it Patron. Mm -hmm. And they're like, and then it quickly turns into like a, oh, this isn't funny. I'm pissed off. Right. That yeah. I'm, I'm a fool. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes, that's, that's the mentality, right? That, that leads him to abuse his power because yeah. underneath it, it's just insecurity and anger and rage that, He's keeping barely right, but in, in the context of the show, they're tying that in with, you know, not getting paid enough, which 
again, I agree with to an extent, but I also feel like, like I said, you have to be a certain type of person to go down that path. You know what I mean? And, and I, I also would say specifically, I feel like they're doing this for Jenkins. I don't feel like they're doing it for Herschel. To me, Herschel seems to be presented as like 100% evil, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like completely irredeemable. Yeah. Whereas, and maybe it's just a, um, a facet of it being a, a big time acting role for Bernthal and he's kind of like the centerpiece of the whole thing. And so they're trying to make that like a, a more dramatic arc. But yeah. Oh, I okay. Know. I mean, yeah. I, I think we can get into like the, the the breakdown, but I don't find Jenkins. Maybe it's just me. I don't find him sympathetic at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, part two. Vulture recap by Scott Tobias. There's a way to tell the story of Wayne Jenkins and the gun ta- gun trace task force that frames them as a rogue unit using its independence from the everyday rigors of the Baltimore Police Department to avoid accountability and steal money from citizens and from the government through an overtime scam. That's not the story that we own the city. We own this city wants to tell because it would place the GTTF all too neatly in the bad apple file with Jenkins as the ringleader of a unit full of egregiously corrupt or corruptible cops. By doing so, it would let the BPD itself completely off the hook. Baltimore Police Department. The second hour of We Own This City makes it emphatically, sometimes too emphatically, Mm. clear that the GTTF is merely the byproduct of an institution that incentivizes corruption and lawlessness within its own ranks. That's why the structure of the show is so important. We have to learn about the crimes in the investigation, as well as the effort by the DOJ to report on root causes. Department of Justice. <laughs> root I'm causes. Helping with your abbreviation. But, <laughs> but we also have to see Jenkins' earliest days on the force and understand that perhaps there's nothing particularly special about him at all. Bottom line, he represents the police. He's not an anomaly. Um... So this is where I wrote down my first note for this episode. Mm-hmm. And it applies to this episode and the next one. And I'm assuming the rest of the series. And and maybe, again, I would feel differently if I went back and rewatched the first episode. But starting with this episode, it felt to me like all of the subtlety, all like all of the nuance went right out the window. And all of a sudden, John Bernthal is capital a acting he's thrown in every single face twitch he can think of he's 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 blinking his eyes and twisting his mouth up <laughs> it's just it's like it's like okay um and it doesn't ruin the show for me it does become a little much and i think part of it probably has to do with and not part of it i think all of it has to do with and and you mentioned this too when we we're talking when you first came over about I think it was this episode where Nicole Steele, it felt like she was just kind of like, like tell like there to let people monologue exactly what the, they want the viewer to take away from the show. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably has to do with the fact that this is only six episodes long. 
And so you don't have five seasons of The Wire to like put in these long storylines where it's like you can just sort of watch them unfold. And then at the end of a 10 hour long season, that's when you get the the moral of the story. Right. Instead, they kind of have to do it in every single scene. And to me, it like I said, maybe it's just is the fact that I've been listening to that podcast and a lot of the podcast is is literally just explaining what the themes of each episode is and breaking everything down, which is very interesting, but it makes it seem also very unnuanced. Yeah, well, it, it kind of runs into the problem of fictionalizing a, a true story, right? That in the end, to get the points of this story, I could just read about it, you know? Right. And just get all that they're trying to do. And so the only thing I'm left with is yeah, the acting, how's the story told and, and all that. Whereas the wire, you could, I mean, you, you break down the wire into its parts and it's so, it's as absurd as any other show. Yeah. Right. Um, that, you know, Omar. Right. As a <laughs> he's gay. Yeah, it's just right. so good. He's like the Punisher. And he's the Punisher. And there's like the scene where he's coming, they're like, Omar's coming. Right, and you're yeah. like, it's, it's so ridiculous. At the same time, it's so good, right? As as TV, as television. And you have that freedom to create that character and make him be who you want him to be. Whereas this, like you said, you're you're you have to color within the lines. Mm-hmm. So I think always these types of approaches are going to be restrictive in that way. So I do expect more of like a didactic presentation of the events, a Mm -hmm. little more like, this is what happened. This is this person. And the other thing you have to realize is a lot of these people are reflecting real people. The last thing that you want to do as a, as an actor or probably as a writer is like misconvey some actual person and piss them off yeah so unless they deserve to be pissed off so you know on that you think about steel like the like the lawyer it's like yeah maybe that's why she's written so blandly because yeah. it literally is just like that's a real person who's doing their job we're not really trying to do an expose on is she really like mm-hmm. what's she about and it's like nope she's she's just a plain good character and she means everything she says and she has all the stats and figures, and she's going to throw them out mm-hmm. every time she opens her mouth. Yeah. So she becomes boring, you yeah. know? The second episode, to me, played like a like a lecture, you know? Yeah. I wasn't really engaged by anything that was happening, and I found myself able to just kind of, like, follow the plot, and then the and then it ended, and I was like, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. The third, the third episode, I think, is better. Mm-hmm. And so we can talk more about that later. But yeah, I agree. The second episode was way more black and white and just... Yeah. Uh, part two hammers down on the aspect of city policing that's purely a numbers game, which was also a major piece of the wire, where dead bodies were handled like some terrible bureaucratic version of hot potato. For the beat cop, police work is not about arresting predators of... Not about arresting perpetrators of crimes... Who can Uh-oh. then be duly processed by the court? It's merely about clearing the corners of urban hotspots, like janitors for the rich and powerful. In order to keep the murder rate down and thus to turn the city's mayor into the future governor of Maryland, 
there have to be fewer people around to shoot or to get shot. Sometimes it requires some creativity in terms of what the charges those under arrest actually face, and almost none of those charges will result in even a day's worth of confinement, much less hearings and evidence and anything else associated with prosecution. It's just the politics of public safety, which is also a huge part of this episode. Um, maybe not in theory, but in action. It's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh Another note that I had, which we've already talked about, uh, and I guess it just goes more to the point of like this episode was really about introducing the system as the problem um, and just kind of walking that line of, like we said, how much responsibility do you put on Jenkins and the cops and how much do you put on just the system? Like, I don't think you can completely separate the two. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the system is the is the Petri dish that, you know, kind of causes the bloom to happen, you know what I mean? And um, and so, yeah, I, I do think that it, of course, is going to be a both and, but absolutely the system bears a majority of the responsibility, right. 100%. Yeah. Jenkins learns that on day one of field training in August 2003, as command runs down the morning orders, Jenkins' training officer says into his ear, <clears throat> all that they told you about in the academy about plausible cause, fuck that now. How, how does he say it? it the, 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 what do they call him? The training officer was like one of those. A little much. He's a little much. It's like, I understand this guy's, probably is from baltimore and you're like going for the feel but it's like i don't know if i could really see this guy as a training officer (laughs) yeah i mean at at the same time though i i do chalk that up to giving me that feeling of like oh yeah this is again a guy in high school who like yeah idolized all the wrong ideas of Mm -hmm. like what being a man is and like what training means and now gets his position and gets to kind of talk like a big man, uh, you know, to a little trainee yeah. who's like wide eyed and oh, I'm excited, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, to me, this episode really drove home again, like the posturing of these people in these positions, mm-hmm. like it's all posturing and, and, Jenkins, going back to the first episode, when he's giving his lectures and his talks, again, it's just about how he's, you know, pretending to be his posture when he's talking about all this stuff that he doesn't really believe in or mm. or do himself. Um, and yeah, that, so so to me, it, it just underscored that that's all like it's all play acting. Yeah, this moment comes back around a bit heavy-handed near near. This moment comes back around a bit heavy-handedly two years later when we see Jenkins, now coarsened by his own time on the beat, saying basically the same thing to a shiny new cop fresh from the academy. Again, that... uh, Juxtaposition? Right. Those two things, what makes it feel heavy-handed is that it happens within 60 minutes of mm-hmm. each other, right? Mm-hmm. If I could if that was episode 1 of the first season of The Wire and then the last season 
or sorry, if that was like the first moment you see even on the first episode of this show and it ends up being like in the last 10 minutes of this season, it would be really great writing, right? But because it happens like, and you can see it, it's so telegraphed that it's coming, it feels heavy handed. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And, and you're absolutely right in that they're just limited by, I think, how many episodes they have. Right. Because you have, yeah. I mean, just think about McNulty, you know, mm -hmm. in, in The Wire. You just have so much time with him. Right. And through his, like, ups and downs and mistakes and, like, you you actually live with him through that. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, with this, you get to see him before, you get to see him after, and they fill in a little bit before. There's more to be revealed about the this is Baltimore part of the spiel. The arrogance and defiance of those words is not just about making a quote. But any idealism the young officer may have about public service is extinguished before he finishes his first cup of morning coffee. What makes a David Simon and George Pelicano show a David Simon and George Pelicano show is that they back up their polemics with specifics. And so we get casually starting scenes like the one where Jenkins and his fellow blue bloods randomly throw three men against the wall, search their pockets and charge them all with possession, even though weed is found on only one. And another where drugs discovered in a vacant lot are used for a similar purpose. And they had another more surreal scene where a guy sitting on the corner stoop of his actual rev residence is told to go back inside or face arrest. The mass protesting, the mass processing of these absurd callers gets so absurd that an assistant state's attorney is assigned to release people under the condition that they not sue the city for false arrest. Nicole Steele's monumental task for the Civil Rights Division of DOJ is to untangle such systemic wrongs, and we continue to follow her around in the part of the timeline that's closest to the present day. Nicole's focus on Daniel is on Dan, remains on Daniel Herschel, who still seems to her like the biggest case study in racist and corrupt uh, police practices. She speaks to a rapper named Young Moose, who referenced Herschel in one of his songs and talks to her about not only being harassed and charged by him, but having Herschel steal money straight out of his pockets. Young Moose, real rapper. The song they play on the show is the actual song about Herschel. Uh, but then going back to the Nicole Steele thing, and I just don't feel like I've communicated it properly. Her scenes in the show feel very specifically it, it almost feels like she's just there as like maybe like the hbo executive that david simon is telling the story to you know what i mean like she's just there to like get out the i, I don't know it just feels so like painfully obvious and i i think she's great in the show mm -hmm. but in terms of like what she's doing and how she's written it's like it, well here's the thing again love love the actor mm -hmm. i don't understand her motivation for any of the meetings that she has with anybody in the show yeah when she goes and talks to the um spoken word guy right you know and then when she goes and talks to her soul at the end of this episode what what's she trying to accomplish mm -hmm. i don't understand like She's going to talk to her soul, just kind of throw some weight around, be like, hey, we're looking into you. Because he obviously doesn't care. And he, right. and he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. 
So that wasn't really the point. Well, and she to has to know that he doesn't care. That's what I'm saying. But she seems totally like caught off guard by it. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, like, why was she going there that night? What was she yeah. ex- was she expecting him to be like? Yeah, no, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really trying to change. I'm really trying to do my best. Like, and d- did she just have her own personal curiosity about him? I don't mm-hmm. even get that sense from her. Yeah, I have a feeling like. She has all the, the the facts and figures, and then she's just every single you know scene getting told the party line and being like, "Well, I never," you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, she looks up another young black man who earned a deep gash to the forehead for the crime of wearing a hoodie in a bad neighborhood. And finally, she has her first sit-down with Herschel himself, who smugly accounts for his dozens of complaints by saying that cops don't get complaints, that cops who don't get complaints don't do any policing. Then he returns his beer and the bones of his chicken drumstick. And again, another situation where you have the way they interact with the other guys at the bar. Again, this is like a, a man-child. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to point out a lot of lip smacking in this scene. Oh, so much lip smacking. I wanted to gag. Yeah, you, <laughs> it truly, it's funny you say that because I truly believe this. I was like, I bet there was a bet right before this. <laughs> I yeah. bet there was a bet. Or there had like, to be. Watch this, guys. I'm going to make uh-huh. you all sick. And then John Bernthal does it in episode three. That's what I'm There's saying. There's a scene where he's like licking. He licks like each finger five <laughs> times. It's like, how much stuff do you have on your fingers? Oh, it has to be an inside joke. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the, the one thing I wanted to say too, going just going back to that initial point about the anger thing. I I had to get my get some blood work today. Mm-hmm. I'm in the, the main office. There's this guy talking to a lady and they're talking very loudly mm-hmm. and they're in the mid, they're in the open waiting room area. Right. And all I hear him say is, you know, Patriot act and all this other stuff. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I only have my shot because I have to, but you know, I'm okay <laughs> if I wasn't, you know, and uh-huh. they're going on and on and on about politics right. and all this stuff. And, um, and she gets called and she's like, okay, so I have to go. And then they, they're saying their goodbyes. And she's like, don't get in trouble. And he's like, yeah, I'll try not to. But then I open up my mouth and, you know, <laughs> and she's like, ah, ha, ha. And I was uh-huh. like, exact. that's, that's Hersel, right? right. That, yeah. that exactly like non-joke joke, like about like himself. What does he say? Where he's like, how's my wife and kids or right. whatever. You right. know what I mean? How are my kids doing? Right? How, how are my yeah. kids doing? And. It it masks this barely veiled fury mm-hmm. that would make you talk openly in a waiting room where nobody cares yeah. what you have to say. Right. Nobody nobody is bringing this up, right. and you just can't help yourself right. to talk about. But it. you're the flag bearer for being so like vocal about it. Yeah, yeah, and then you're also the one who's like, "Hey, man, I'm not angry. I'm just, yeah, I'm just saying how it is. <laughs> right. You know, it's like I'm just saying what everybody else in here is thinking." <laughs> I know you're thinking. I know you're thinking. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, that delusion, that that element of delusion. And again, that's what I see in Herschel and Jenkins. Yeah, for sure. In all these guys. Uh, more thematic reinforcement comes in an FBI interrogation scene of another one of Jenkins' boys, Jamel, who addresses bigger robbery schemes 
than taking down corner uh, perps for loose change. Jamel recalls one big score in which he and another GTTF member pulled a man over and seized $11,000 in cash that the suspect claimed was the equity on a mortgage refinancing. They took the money with the the proviso that he could get it back if he produced the bank receipts. More pertinent to the case, however, is Jamel's breakdown of the robbery at Aaron Anderson's place, which itself unlocks a long-standing relationship between Gondo, a gun trace uh, colleague, and the drug kingpin Brill, who's an old friend from the neighborhood. The plot thickens, and most of the quality police work being done is scrutinizing the police. The impression that I get from the show, or I'm sorry, from the subreddit, is that this show is following what happened in real life, like, as closely as as possible. Mm -hmm. With that being said, the scenes with Jamel talking to the FBI agents... I would be really interested to know if he actually is like telling this, like he seems so cooperative right off the bat. He's just like, yeah, let me just tell you everything. You're not going to have to ask me any questions. I'm just going to give you all of it. Yeah. The, The one thing that's interesting about that is they do give him the line and you do feel like this is true where he's like, again, blame the system. He's like, Hey, this is the system that was presented to me. I have no affinity to it. I'll flip on them as as much as I'll flip on anything else. Like Mm -hmm. I flipped on my morals to be part of the system. And now that we're all caught, I'll flip again. I don't have a problem. Yeah. So in terms of like whether or not he said that like verbatim, I do have the feeling that it's true to that character probably who again has no feelings towards the people involved. They are truly just, accepting that they're part of a system that's bigger than them and they're going to go along with the system until they get caught and then they'll be along with that new system and the new system is squeal on on everybody he's like okay yeah uh and then he has what he calls burners at the end of the article article which is just a couple little points uh let me say too just for the record in case for, for posterity, if this ever gets to Scott to buy his ears or anything like that, I'm going to, whatever it costs to do a subscription, if we're really going to read <laughs> his thing verbatim, I feel like... <laughs> no, it's exposure. We're giving him, ex- we're paying oh, him an yeah, exposure, giving, right? Yeah, yeah. With the one listener in Denmark uh-huh. that, that, that we have, I, I, I do feel like if... I didn't know it was going to be so extensive. Sure. On his, I thought you were going to like pull a few sentences. And and listen, I think it's great. Yeah. So I feel like we should pay. I'll go back and give him a couple bucks. <laughs> All right. Burners. John Bernthal is just an electrifying actor. Wait, wait, wait. What was that? John Bernthal is an electrifying actor. He's great. And and he does something for all the lip smacking, the the face twitching that you put on him in this episode uh-huh. i'll say he does something in episode three that to me really oh, really p- puts a pin on why i think he's doing a great job okay yeah it's it, to me it's it's getting a little over the top and it feels a little bit like 
if you took just like one of the scenes out of context, if it was like the Emmys and it's like, here's a scene from We Own the City with John Bernthal. And maybe that's like not fair. The whole point is that it's a show and you should watch it in context. It would feel like, wait a minute, this is guys being nominated for best acting because he's like, he's like blinking and twisting his mouth up. And it's like, okay, this is like a little much. (laughs) Um, You'd expect the police to close ranks around their leader in a situation like this. But what's striking is that Jamel and the others can't turn on Jenkins fast enough. Mm hmm. Uh, passing suitor in a parking garage, Gondo can't help but have a laugh at his expense. You can't even mm-hmm. make any money working homicide, mm-hmm. which is not true, right? Like, like, and again, that that to me comes as like a like a a confession more than anything, right? Because part of this is like what Scott Tobias said at the beginning of the article. It could be an expose on the abuse of overtime, right? Right. Um and and you you have that at play too which homicide detectives also are are part of too. Right. Like when they're working a case I remember it, it was an article it was years ago. Mm-hmm. But I remember there's an exposé in like the Miami Herald about like breaking down what homicide detectives make. Like on a case you're talking like right. six figures yeah. that they're pulling in because they're they're on the case, right? right. Like, like day, twenty four hours a day or whatever. Um, so, so you, so you have that. So, to me, it felt like that is him almost saying, like, you can't make any money. Like, come be dirty with us, you right? Know what I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it comes up more explicitly in the next episode. I know it's in my notes at least, but I do. And someone on the subreddit also mentioned that, like the Baltimore police actually make pretty good money. And so I don't, I, I think the, um, the intention is true, right? Like I worked for the city of Virginia beach for eight years and I felt like I was serially underpaid. Mm. And I think with this, I, I, so I relate to that to an extent um, whether or not they're actually underpaid is up for debate. Probably not. But I think it it would have more to do with... And again, may, maybe the show doesn't do a good job of like exploring this. I think it probably has more to do with the fact of like, I'm making maybe enough money to live comfortably and then I'm going into like this drug dealer's house and I see he just like casually has $20,000 stashed away in his closet. And it's like this, that is paying so much more and better than me. And I'm risking my life to like do this. So that's what I relate to. Again, I don't think the show necessarily, maybe the show's not trying to say that. I don't think it necessarily like enforces that very well. It does very much seem to be like, yeah, we feel like we're underpaid and we just want to make more money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, also Gondo again, along the same lines of the, uh, training officer feels a little bit too much on the other side. Yeah. Like, like urban side of things, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, what do you mean by that? Like he's like, like it's like he talks in pure slang, just like the training officer. It just doesn't feel like 
it doesn't feel like he's trying to be like I don't know it just feels strange like in the parking garage I don't know it just and maybe that's the character it just feels completely um detached from the position you mm-hmm. know what I mean mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah I mean what what goes back to that in the first episode where you have their commanding officer or ever show up and he seems to like be giving them a hard time and then he like starts joking around with them right um yeah and and you, and you have that kind of play again that the system allows you to not be professional you know what i mean the system allows for these gray areas to exist and again yeah per, to, to me i take it as like again blaming the system to allow him him to act that way i guess mm-hmm. Uh, kid, there's no dictatorship in America more Saul than a beat cop in his post, uh, which apparently is like, there's also a line in the wire that's very similar to that. McDougal setting up a wire to track Brill's phone calls is definitely an invitation for all of us to do the Leonardo DiCaprio's pointing meme from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hey, Tommy, how's your wife and my kids doing? Great closer to the episode. Leave him laughing. I didn't find that particularly funny. Great little character uh, line for rehearsal, for sure. To me, the funniest part of the episode was <laughs> Jenkins running up to the guy who's on the ground and just grabbing a leg and beating and being, it with the baton and it being another sneakers. police officer. Yeah, because he's wearing sneakers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was hilarious. That, that's great. And yeah, that joke, how are my kids... That to me is the exact joke of like the guy today. Absolutely. Where it's like, that's how they explain I'm self deprecating. Mm-hmm. I, I don't take myself too seriously. Yeah. When really it's like, you really do take yourself way too seriously. Right. All right. Part three. Uh, toward the end of this week's episode of We Own the City, Tim Aller is a supervisor in the task force, takes his turn getting questioned by the FBI. His Tim be- Allers. That's the guy who came looking like he was going to like. Oh, be tough right. on them and then was joking right. around with them. Yeah. The guy in the track suit. Yeah. He's been more defensive than his colleagues in the previous two episodes, at first refusing to cooperate altogether until his lawyer potentially explains to him that he's up on federal charges, which means a stiffer sentence. Uh, like ahead. Young Thug. <laughs> the rapper? <laughs> What's going on with Young Thug? You don't know? No. What? His whole crew got brought up on RICO charges. Oh, I think I did see that. Yeah, and, and he just had like seven more felonies added to his case today. Um, anyway. The feds have caught him stealing $10,000 from Devin Robinson. Um, did you... Uh, uh, the feeling I got from that scene was that it seemed like it affected hours right but then when it carried out a little bit longer i thought oh i guess he doesn't care well they they leave the right they they tell him the story and then and they then leave. they leave right and then it's it just ends on his face still staring at mm-hmm. his they don't say anything yeah that to me was something where i was like that felt a little too long like yeah. they, they should have given him one more piece of direction because yeah he kind of just stares blankly yeah and at first i was like oh he was affected and i was like 
Wait, why is he still just staring? Yeah, maybe there's just nothing there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like then you second guess it by the, by yeah. the same reaction. Um, <clears throat> then we start following Suter around, and, and that's when he has the conversation with the with the guy that's just like biding his time, uh, which we already talked about. The the big the okay, so it says the heart of part three, however, is the juxtaposition between Wayne and Suter's stories and how they once intersected. Once again, the show turns back the clock uh, to Wayne's formative years on the force in the mid aughts, when certain bad habits were developed and reinforced. In one particular shocking incident, his hair trigger, blah, blah, he beats up the guy. They pull him in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. And my note here. Oh. So this was a comment that I read on the post-episode discussion I thought was interesting. Um, this commenter named Goose says... Really interesting, the defection of Jenkins fluctuates between he's super cop who everyone idolizes in 2017 and just a dumb redneck in 2005. The motivation behind corruption is spelled out really well so far. If the attitude behind government and public service is it's not my problem for so many years, all that's left is chasing money. Mm -hmm. And the reason I thought that was interesting is because... I, like I said, worked for the city of Virginia Beach for eight years, right? And I almost never got the impression from any city employees that they were there just for the money. First of all, because there's no money there, right? Yeah. Um, but the 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 vast ma- the like majority of the impressions I got from people working at the city is that they wanted to do best by the city, you know? Um, and so, and, and I feel like that thinking of like, obviously city workers are lazy, blah, blah, blah. They don't really, they're just there for an easy paycheck, whatever is like very um, pervasive amongst, I guess, American culture. Um and so, and, and I also don't get, I never got that impression from the show that these, again, I mean, we talk about this, that these guys are just there to chase money. Um, like I said, I think they've given Wayne a lot of like leeway to be like, this guy's been shaped by the system and all that's left is chasing money because of all these other extenuating factors, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's just not the impression, uh, the impression that I got that was just about chasing money, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving back to the end of the time on this show, spends time with Suter as he works a murder case alongside a uniformed officer who shows a refreshing interest in following protocol. That uniformed officer is Dookie from the wire. Dookie is the kid who shoots heroin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but Jamie Hector as Suter has an air about him that's familiar to Marlo Stanfield, blah, 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 the drug dealer he played in The Wire. He's excellent at projecting an active intelligence scenes. The compare and contrast between Wayne and Suter sets up a sequence from their past when they worked the same unit. A raid on a dock house is, for Wayne and his team, another opportunity to make some arrests and skim from whoever 
from whatever trove of guns, guns and cash they have, they happen to find. So up until this point, it's been talked about a lot that Suter was a part of the task force at one point, right? Specifically in that scene with Gondo we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's always been kind of left up in the air, like how involved involved was he Mm -hmm. in taking money and stuff. Part of Wayne's purpose in this operation is to test the waters for the team. Is Suter one of them or not? Will he look past the some unconventional policing, like smashing up a guy's place with a tire iron, and more importantly, will he take his cut of the loot? Do you, can I ask you a question really quick? If I'm honest and I put myself in this situation, I'm taking the 20K. Absolutely. And then I am saying, I'm, I got my, my finger dirty, I'm done. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to do that. Do, do, do you think they would be, do you think, do you think that would be acceptable where it's like, I'm dirty to a point? Or uh, do you think they'd be like, now we're, you're still on our radar. We don't know. We don't trust you. Yeah. I mean, no, you can't take anything, right? Or else ah, you're see, dirty. Okay, you can't yeah. take anything. See, my, my, my feeling is like, listen, guys, keep me off the gun task force. Uh-huh. I'll take this. And then leave me on my beat. Leave me on my my way. I'll yeah. go wherever, but I don't want any more than this. But I will take this. Yeah. I mean, look, I 1,000% get it if you're in somebody's house and you see $20,000 in the closet and you're just like, I could take this right now and no one's ever going to know. It's drug money. Right. I'm not quote-unquote hurting 100% understand that, that temptation. Um, yeah. The one thing I did want to say this is, again, don't know how true this is, and it certainly feels like a, listen, we need to just, like, have an action here that sets suit. We just need to get out of this scene, all right? And so it's like, Suter's just like, hey, this table's weird. (laughs) (laughs) And they break apart the table. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Well, what's funny is... It also seems like a really bad hiding spot for a bunch of guns and money. He's trying to get Jenkins' attention for like literally a minute as Jenkins is just like freaking out. He's like, hey, hey, hey. And then finally he's like, this table's yeah weird. Um, Yeah, that, that whole scene was kind of odd and funny. And then also like... Jenkins again the the whole kind of like let me talk to you reasonably and then the the switch being flipped you know you're just like yeah this guy is so angry yeah all the time yeah <laughs> Jenkins is also I don't know if this was the point not intimidating at all in that scene and the the guy that they have tied up even says so exactly and it's like I don't know if that was the purpose but yeah he was 100% just like like smacking the walls and is like is this supposed to be intimidating well, like is he supposed to be unhinged because this completely seems like an act See, that, that, that's my thing is like he he really is play acting yeah like these are guys who are in positions that allow them a, a, a access to power that probably they never had before mm-hmm. you know like i get the sense that like jenkins probably wasn't cool in like high school right you know what i mean yeah and then he like, whatever, maybe he believes in the cause a little bit, but he's a little bit of an outlier. Well, either he, he wasn't in- cool or he was absolutely cool, right, for being the exact same way he is now. Yeah. Or the I, way he turns out, I guess. See, I, I get the sense, again, going back to like his wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, mm. like first, you know, training right. you know, se- sequence, 
that no, he was like a guy who's probably like a little bit of an outlier, wants to be part of a brotherhood, wants to be part of like something that means something, and he believes in the system. But underneath it, he is like a disaffected kind of loner who's angry. Yeah, and you see that again in like the other the other argument for him not being cool is his mispronouncing of. Patron. Patron. Like yeah. he doesn't know what Patron is. That's true. And <laughs> he his reaction is not like, yeah, I'm cool. It's like total defensiveness. Like yeah. he's been exposed and he's furious. Um Wayne is wowed by Suter's perceptiveness, his ability to recognize a table as a treasure chest. <laughs> <laughs> but Suter's deep discomfort in the moment, followed by a scene later where he politely declines a stack of bills, which we don't know. The whole point of that scene is that we don't know what he does. We don't know because it ends with it on the stack of bills. Tells Wayne all he needs to know, who he's not up for the job. So, yeah, that that's weird because I felt like the whole purpose of the scene was like, eh, does he take it? Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think he takes the money? Obviously, we can look this up and know, but... I mean, I'm going to say no, but my feeling is because he's not part of the task force, right? So... Is he, uh, so is he, he's not like officially part of the task. He's just working alongside them. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's why I thought I could be right. wrong now that, but yeah. So, so my feeling is no, but again, if I was him and playing, playing that out, I would be the guy who's like, yeah, I'll work around you guys. Like I understand what you're doing, so I'll take this, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not a part of you. Yeah. Uh, okay. Burners. Kevin Davis, the police commissioner, is a fascinatingly slippy, slippery character. Not least because the man who plays him, Delaney Williams, was such a persistent thorn in everyone's side as Jay Landsman in The Wire. Davis engages Nicole in a tone that's alternately honest, defensive, and peppered with doublespeak. Mm-hmm. He knows Herschel's a problem, but explains why he can't be kicked off the force just yet. He doesn't hate the idea of a consent decree... Can I say something that I know is going to piss off Bobo Cramp? Mm -hmm. I don't know what a consent decree is. (laughs) (laughs) I missed that part of the show. That was in the first episode. I have not been curious enough to look it up since then. (laughs) I just know it keeps getting said over and over again, and the police are not for it, and the DOJ is for it. Yeah, so in, in in the first episode, he's like, yeah, I operate underneath a consent decree. He's like, I'm, I'm okay with it. Right. Um, it resolves a dispute between two parties without admission of guilt. Um, oh, okay. That makes sense. In a criminal case or liability. Uh, interesting exchange between a poet who writes about police brutality and Nicole, blah, 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 blah. You can't clean the floor with Dirty water, typically engaging response from the hypothetical Nicole passes to the head of the police union about whether he could ever believe an officer should be fired. After a long pause, he replies, we are a labor union. We are here to support our members. And that's Herc. Mm -hmm. Nicole, on how BPD measures up against other city departments, I'd like to say I've seen worse, but I can't remember where. Half the department quit working to protest the Freddie Gray indictments and the other half can't stop beating on people. And both halves tell me the job can't be done legally. Yeah. I mean, the the, the, the problem, like, and again, this goes back to 
I don't know if we said on the podcast. I think we did. Or if I said it to you in person. But you you have two sides, right? And on the one side, you have people who refuse to accept the systemic, you know, racism and systemic abuse, right, of systems like policing and, you know, all the way down to, like, education and, and work and even home ownership, right, that all these, you know, uh, institutions are impacted by a systemic racial problem mm-hmm. that goes back hundreds of years. <clears throat> One side cannot accept that at all. Mm-hmm. They Nope. Every new day wipes away everything that happens before. So stop trying to bring up what happened, you know, in the past mm-hmm. because the sun rose today mm-hmm. and that's all we care about. So let's move forward. At the same time, those people that would deny that systemic presence of, you know, racial inequality and stuff are willing to go and implicate any person or institution they need to, to undercut like education, let's say. Mm -hmm. The educational system is broken. You know why? Because everyone's a pedophile. Mm -hmm. Every teacher is a pedophile all the colleges are liberal and everything is, oh, and, and demonic forces are all, like, they will go as far as they need to to justify their position on something while also <clears throat> denying that there's any greater context to the issue that they don't believe in and mm-hmm. don't accept. And so with this, right, you have, like, a system at play that is, completely broken right and that is too big to fix and then you have people who just refuse to accept that that reality but yet they will accept it on other issues and other mm. things <clears throat> it makes no sense yeah to me, you know yeah i mean the i mean the most immediate example of that i think is the union right like all of these police are protected because of how strong the police union is. But I would not be surprised at all if you exactly. took a poll of police workers who, and, and found out right, who was Amazon. for and against the Amazon union. And it would be overwhelming for against. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. No, that's exactly mm-hmm. it. Right? And so you benefit from a system and you just accept the things that make you you know, kind of not have to deal with stuff. Yeah. And then you just deny the things that, you know, you don't want to deal with. Yeah. All right. Um, Do you want to do a quick couple minute under the banner talk? Have you been watching? We watched the first two episodes. What did you think? Uh, It's... uh, It makes me want to read the book. I t- I that almost sounds bad. Yeah, because I feel like okay, so the um murder scene in the first episode uh-huh. is very I understand it's a murder scene. It is very dramatic. <laughs> it is slow motion. 
you know, long shots of Andrew Garfield struggling with this scene without ever actually seeing the scene with very dramatic, with a very dramatic score playing over top of it. And it goes on for a while. Well, I, I told you the one thing before you watched it, I told you my, my one impression. Was I correct? And like, yes, he like has a religious response right. that almost the other police are like, oh God. The other police are throwing up because they, <laughs> they can't look at it. And Andrew Garfield is questioning like the existence of God. He like basically. immediately falls on his knees <laughs> and starts like praying. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's a little... It's a little so much. much. Um, and the second thing that makes me feel that way is the, fan, the, the um, what are they called? What's their names? But the family. I, the yeah. family. And the way they act is, it's not like so over the top that it makes me not like the show, but it is like almost uncanny. And it's, it is in such a way that makes me feel like, I'm sure this is a fully faithful recreation of how the book tells it, but it's one of those things that's like you can get away with it in a book because it's my imagination that's doing it, so it's automatically going to make sense to me. But when you put it in a show or in a movie and it's someone else's interpretation of it, to me it feels a little goofy, right? A little over the top. See, I, I've re- I read the book, but I don't remember it in super detail. Mm-hmm. So I can't really tell about the family, but see, I took it as like, what, what can set apart? And the, do you, did you read like the true story? Mm-mm. Okay. Don't know anything about it. Okay. So I won't spoil it, but I think that there's a, what the book gets at is that there is, in a lot of religions, right? And this book focuses in on Mormons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think all religions have this, at least in their history, or certain people operating in this way. There's a more readily, like, available opportunity to claim that your actions are God's directions. Mm-hmm. And so everything is heightened. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't eat this bread, but like God is fueling, like with every calorie we give to our bodies, (laughs) we are only furthering the divine call. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of directive. If you accept that as like the driving purpose of your being, that's what you're going to get. And so you have this lady being introduced to the family and you can see like the guy's like nervous because he knows his parents are like laser focused on her. Right. And like analyzing her and weighing her. And they have her a very defined role for her. That and she, right. Evaluating her. And it's like, I don't come from a background like that, but I, I felt that absolutely. Yeah. And it's not that far removed from like, Ooh, yeah, th- this could be, absolutely be have been my family and i definitely grew up around these people yeah and so i thought that they really did a good job of like that intensity created an uncanniness of her first engagement with them yeah they immediately after a while it finally sinks in on you and you're like this is like midsummer like yeah this is really right. 
yeah. scared. Like, this is really weird. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, her, she's Mormon, right? But they're like progressive, quote unquote, Mormons. her side. Yeah. Right. Like her dad is right. the one who's like, yeah. I want to see you happy and pursue your dreams. Right. Or, yes. Yeah. Cause I, th- I've, was completely under the impression of like she's Mormon, but then when you see her family, it and it it was just like I guess I just don't know enough about Mormons, but it was such a like contrast to their family. Yeah, like it, that I was again, like, oh wait a minute, is she not a Mormon? Yeah, I, like I think Mormons condense because they're a newer religion. Yeah, they condense the history of a lot of religions into a much more compact story, right? Which is why it's easier because with Christians, you have to go back to the Crusades, mm-hmm. right? But then someone can say, well, how many years has it been since the Crusades? Like, old story, old news. Right. <laughs> but in this, you could, and something that the book does, that the show's doing too, that I think pissed a lot of people off, is it's telling the story of Joseph Smith. Right. Which is the story of a man who at every turn when he was confronted with, wait, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Just goes double, no, God double down. Yeah. No, God, God said I could marry you too. You know? yeah. Oh, that you found that. Yeah, that's God wanted right. you. Oh, these people aren't awake. God wants us to kill them. Yeah. You know, so you you have a religion born out of a guy who basically is just doubling, tripling down on everything yeah. this way. And then you have a family who's operating in a way with that same directive. Everything that we say is God ordained. Mm-hmm. So we can do what we want. And then you have, again, what happens with religions, you get farther away from that, you know, starting point, mm-hmm. it becomes more loose. And so with Christians, you get like Protestants who are like, ah, you don't need to know Latin. Who cares? Right. You know, oh, here's the Bible. We all have it. Who cares if you read it? You know? Well, the impression that I got from that from their family is not necessarily that it's whatever their family, it's whatever they say goes. It's that they're taking the text in like a hyper literal sense. No, e- exactly. Okay. So, so they're not saying that they're Joseph Smith, but they're applying the same rules and approach that Joseph Smith did. Right. Which Joseph Smith was basically saying, whatever I want. Right. Oh, okay. And so, I see what you're saying. but her family is like more on the Protestant side of like, yeah, we're Mormons, but I mean, come on. Chill yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, Barry is great. Um, Better Call Saul. Yeah, great. thank you. And what else? Under the Banner of Heaven, Shining Girls. Interesting. Oh, I think I'm going to watch Bull, right? Since Julia's gone. Oh, yeah. The movie Chris oh. was talking about. Oh, yeah. What's it on again? Very violent. On my Plex. That's what I'm watching when Julia's not here. <laughs>